Well, amen. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Moses. Moses, one of the central characters of the Old Testament story in the life of Israel. And I'm going to catch you up in just a few minutes, catch you up where we've been over the last several weeks. But where we are this morning is in Exodus chapter 33. And Moses is leading the Israelite people towards the promised land. And he has this conversation with God. So listen to what God says in verse 3. This is God talking to Moses. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. That is the promised land. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So very simply, what God says is, Moses, you and the people can keep going to the promised land. It's fine, but I'm not going to come with you. It's quite the predicament they find themselves in. How did they get here? The book of Genesis tells the story of God coming to a man named Abram, who then we call Abraham, and telling him that the whole world will be blessed by Abraham's family. The rest of the book of Genesis is the story of Abraham's family wrestling with God and trying to understand who God is calling them to be. They end up, Abraham's great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren end up living in the land of Egypt where they grow as a nation, and then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, decides to enslave them. Now, out of this enslavement, one baby boy is born named Moses, and Moses, early in the book of Exodus, escapes the grasp of, the, of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people and ends up in this weird twist living in the palace and being raised by Pharaoh's family. But when he's a young man, he commits a crime and ends up running as a fugitive into the desert away from Egypt. As he's on the run, he gets caught up by a burning bush. And as he gets to the burning bush, God says, Moses. Now, now Moses is on the run as a murderer. And he says, Moses, I'm going to use you. You're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to lead your people, lead my people out of slavery to freedom. And so God then starts to work in Moses' life and forms him through a man named Jethro, who is his father-in-law. Moses goes back to Egypt And through a series of plagues, we looked at the ten plagues of Israel, each more dynamic and more powerful than than the previous. God leads his people out of slavery and into the wilderness. Now, on their journey, they come go through all kinds of trials. They cross through a sea on dry ground. They're fed manna and quail, and they're given water. And then they come to a place called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is in the middle of the desert. And Moses goes up on the mountain while the people camp below so, they can, uh, so that he can hear the voice of God and be told, how should these people live? So that's all the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah is essentially God saying, all you know is life in Egypt. I want to teach you a new way of living. So Moses is up there getting the commandments. The people below are thinking, this Moses guy is never coming back. So they decide... It's a brilliant idea. Let's take all of our gold and make a beautiful golden calf, and we will worship that golden calf because we haven't seen God, and we don't know if Moses is coming back. So they start to worship the golden calf. And then what happens? Moses comes back, 
right? Moses comes down the mountain and he says, it's not good. It's not good. And God sees it and God's like, this is a disaster. And that's when he tells Moses, you can go to the promised land, but I probably shouldn't come with you because if I come with you, it won't end well if you keep acting like this. God says, you can go, but I won't come. I was reminded of Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark, in the very early 19th century, led an expedition across the United States to explore the Northwest Territories. They were looking for a pathway to the Pacific Ocean, and they were charting their path as they went. They knew they would run into the Rocky Mountains when they got to about Idaho, or what we consider Idaho. What they thought was they would climb the first range of mountains, and they would see the Pacific Ocean. If you've seen a map, you know that's not what happens, right? They go through the first range of mountains, and they see more mountains. It's a gut punch. Oh, we thought we were almost there. We were on our way. Things were looking up. This is what Moses experiences. We were almost there. Things were going so well. I just had this holy encounter with God on the mountain, and these people just messed everything up. This is a critical moment in the life of the nation of Israel. Will they walk away from God? Or will they become the people that God intends for them to be? You and I are familiar with this kind of uncertainty. We have made big decisions in life sometimes, but we don't know how they're going to turn out. We've moved our family across the country for a job. We've decided to date someone, to marry someone. We bought a house, we've changed jobs, we've started a company. We've risked something and we're left wondering, where's this gonna go? Will this lead us to the future that we've intended? Will this work out? And so this morning we pick up the story where Israel's future, God's people's future, hangs in the balance. They're not promised that things will go well. And so Moses goes into this tent on the very edge of the encampment, and the tent is on the edge because God's not happy with them. So the tent's out there. Moses goes in to negotiate with God, and we're told that all of Israel stands at their tents to watch and wait and see what will the verdict be. So this morning... We get to eavesdrop on Moses' very intimate conversation with God. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So God has said, you can still go. I'll even send an angel with you, but I won't go. But the thing is, without God, the promised land isn't the promised land. I, I would, I'd be curious to know if, if, if we could find some way of measuring this and, and how many of us would just take the deal. We would just go ahead and go to the promised land, 
right? God's not coming, but it has milk and honey. I, I love those things. There's an angel that's coming. That sounds awesome. It sounds like a good deal. And don't, don't underestimate. These people have been wandering for years in the desert. They have no home to go to. You don't think they'll take the deal? Go to the promised land. An angel will come with you. And it's also tempting for us to over-spiritualize this and say something like, you know, if God doesn't go with them, they'll fail. And that might be true on some level. But there are lots of nations in history who have flourished and grown and thrived who knew nothing of the God of Israel. So they could go to the promised land and they could set up a perfectly fine kingdom that has land and wealth and an army and power and gets along just fine. But the truth is, they'll still be missing something. They'll be missing the presence of God. It wouldn't be the promised land because God won't be there. Many of us are good at creating promised lands in our own minds. You know that, that thing or that place where if you can just get there in your life, all will be well. You can almost taste it, right? You can almost see it. If we only get there, life will be perfect. It will be so much better. Would you be willing to give up your vision of the promised land, to walk away from it, to drop it, if it meant staying with God? If God said, you can go to the promised land, it'll be fine, but I won't go with you. Would you choose, like Moses is choosing, to say, God, if you don't go, I won't go. He says, forget the promised land. God, just come close. And if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear that that is the heartbeat of this text. Just like the children saying, come by here, O Lord. Come close. God, come close close. One of my favorite places on earth is Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City is this gorgeous thing because you can be in the middle of this urban area and you look around and almost 360 degrees there are these beautiful haunting mountains just pressing in. It's gorgeous and it's the nearness of the mountains affects the city. It changes the city. Now this analogy pales in comparison but without the mountains, the city wouldn't be the same. It might still be a fine city, but the opportunities that would be present because of the nearness of the mountains would no longer be there. And so it is with the promised land. The promised land might still be a fine place to live, but the people would miss the opportunities that are available because God is in their midst and present and powerful. Let's look more at how God's closeness affects the nation of Israel. Verse 14. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God said, I'll come. And Moses says, verse 15, he said to him, if your presence won't go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I in your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I in your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, the only reason that God's people are distinct is because of God's closeness. 
because of the presence of God. Even though God already said, okay, Moses, I'll go, Moses asks again, God, if you don't come, I won't go. And what we know is if something is repeated in Scripture, it should cause our ears to perk up. It should cause us to sit up and pay attention. And what Moses is trying to get the people to see, what he's trying to get us to see, what God is trying to get us to see is that to be in right relationship with him means that he is near. It means that he is close, that he's present, and that in fact there is nothing else unique about the people of God than that God is with them. Most of us understand the idea that you start to act like who you hang around. We tell this to our kids and our grandkids. We were told this when we were children that if you hang around those people, you'll start to act like them, right? Because they start to rub off on you. What you'll notice is at Christmas, after the services are over, my family will go to spend time in Alabama. And then when I come back a few days later, I'll be saying y'all a lot more and my accent will be noticeably thicker. Right? Because I hang around people and it just rubs off on you. And the same thing is true with God. If God was close, they would start to be shaped by the character of God. But if he wasn't, they would revert to whatever else they knew. And for them, they knew Egyptian slavery. That was the way of life they knew. For us, we often just revert to whatever messages we are bombarded with that say, This is what a good life looks like. Because all day long, we're getting messages from social media, from the news, from other people in our society. Here's what a good life looks like. And those are the things that start to shape us if God isn't close. You start to lose what makes you distinct. And God repeatedly reminds Israel, repeatedly, I did not choose you because you were special. I did not choose you because you were rich. I did not choose you because you were powerful. In fact, it was the opposite. You had no land and no wealth and no influence. And that's what made you the right people for me to go to work. So when we understand that we bring nothing to the table and we invite God to come close, then God starts to do something in our lives. Are we okay being nothing special without God? Are you okay letting your identity being wrapped up, be wrapped up in who God is and God being close? Now, what might that mean for us specifically? Let's continue in our text. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God again agrees, yes, I will do this. Verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. Verse 19, and God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Pause right there. What God is clearly trying to communicate to Moses is I will do this because I want to, not because you've earned it, but because of who I am. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What Moses experiences here is that when you come close to God, you start to find out who you really are. This summer, how many of you tried to get a glimpse of the eclipse? Let me see a show of hands. If you, in some form or fashion, tried to get a glimpse of the eclipse. It wasn't easy to see here in Minneapolis, was it? Uh, but, but nonetheless, about 1, 1.30, we found ourselves milling about in the parking lot just outside, lucking into boxes <laughs> at a cloudy sky. <laughs> We have friends that drove all the way to places like uh, Nebraska to, to check out the eclipse and see it. But the thing is, the, the eclipse is, is weird because you don't really look at it, right? You don't look directly at it. We're more than satisfied to catch a glimpse of it dimly in a reflection in a homemade box, right? Because the thing about an eclipse is, it's not about looking directly at it. In fact, we don't need to look directly at it. It's the experience of something rare, of something that's once in a lifetime. And so when you think about this moment of Moses being put in the cleft of a rock and God passing by, I don't want you to get caught up on what Moses saw. I want you to imagine what, God, what Moses experienced as God came near. Because Moses continues to double down. God, please come with us. God, if you don't go, I won't go. God, we are nothing without you. God, show me your glory. God, please come so close that I will never be the same, that it will be ingrained in my brain and my, my, my life that I saw something so special that it'll change me forever. The thing is, when you come near to God, you find out who you really are. This past summer, I had a friend who called me and said, I'm coming into town from vacation, and our house sitter has said that in our basement, she thought she saw a bat in the sink. Would you be willing to go over and check and see if the bat's still there? We think it's dead, but would you be willing to go over and check and see if it's still there? And I said, sure, I would love to. I didn't really want to, but how do you say no, right? It seems... So I go over, I get in the house, and on my way down the stairs, there's, there's a kid's baseball bat, like a little foam bat. And I grab it because I thought, well, I need to be armed. It's a bat. <laughs> so I go to the basement, I open up the door. Sure enough, in the sink, there's a little bat about the size of a donut just sitting there. So what do I do? I take, I take the baseball bat, and I whack the sink several times. The bat doesn't move. So I think, bat's dead. I go outside, I get a shovel and the bat. I go inside and I, I reach in the sink to scoop up the dead bat and all of a sudden its wings <laughs> extend. And I screamed <laughs> and I ran out the door and I called my friend and I said, I can't do it. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
But how many of us, when we come close to God, when God comes near, we find out who we really are and who we really are is we're holding on to inadequate and pathetic and insufficient promised lands and dreams and hopes that are nothing compared to what God has for us. When God comes close, it erodes away all of the fanciful visions we have of how special and unique and powerful we are on our own because we are nothing in comparison to the God of the universe. If you see nothing else about this story, I want you to see it's not about speculating about what the hand of God looks like or the backside of God as he passed by. It's about the truth that God was gracious enough to come close. And because God came close, Moses was never the same. God came close. As we've been studying Moses, one of the unique roles that Moses plays in both the Old Testament and the life of Israel, we haven't talked about much, but it's very important. Then that is the role of mediator. Moses is the mediator between God and Israel. He stands in the gap for them. What that functionally means is Israel is going to do something really dumb. We see him do it over and over and over again. But Moses goes before God and says, God, don't look at them. Look at me. And remember the favor I have with you. So don't treat them how they deserve to be treated. Treat them how you would treat me. And because Moses stands in the gap, God does not withdraw his presence and his blessings from Israel. Instead, God comes near, and his nearness means all is well. And that's the point, that God comes close. And so it is with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And in so doing, Jesus says, God, don't look at them. Look at me and treat them how you would treat me. Jesus stands in the gap solely by his grace, and that allows God to come near to us, to come close. Jesus is the God who comes close. We come into this space this morning, into this worship center, into this gathering of the body of Christ from all kinds of places, physical places, emotional places, spiritual places. I know all over this room, we're in different spots. And no matter where you find yourself, where do you need God to come close? Where do you, this morning, this week, need God to come near? Maybe God's calling you to enter into a relationship with him on an intimate level for the first time ever in your life. Maybe you need God to come close. Maybe he's asking you to hold off on or to set aside your vision of your promised land so that he may come near. Maybe God wants to mend something in your life, to heal some brokenness, for you to walk away from the way, things that are causing pain in your life or causing pain in the life of others. Maybe he's asking you to take a risk and to trust that it'll all be okay, that when you walk out on that ledge, you won't be alone because God is near. Where do you need to say, God, come close? Where do you need to, like Moses, come to the point 
where all that matters is, God, come near, be with me. And when you ask God to come close and you start moving towards him, you find him moving towards you. The Gospels, the four Gospels are fascinating because they all tell the story of Jesus differently. The Gospel of Mark starts with the message of Jesus. And Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Centuries after Moses had this very same conversation with God, Jesus reminds us that a relationship with God is rooted in the nearness of who God is, of the God who comes close. And so as you gather and worship, may you experience his nearness. As you walk out of this place into the world, may you feel how close God is and that he desires that you would never be the same. May God's presence rub off on you and change you and woo you and transform you and remind you that he has redeemed you and rescued you so that you may know for all the days of your life that God is close. Amen. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, we thank you that you are a God who comes close, that you are a God who loves us enough to not leave us to our own devices. We thank you for leaders in the story like Moses who earnestly and honestly sought your face and stood in the gap the way that Jesus does so much for us so that we may know that even though we don't deserve it, that you love us and that you come close and that only by your mercy that we may walk in right relationship with you. May that transform us and transform our relationships and transform our church and transform the world. We love you and praise you. Amen.